Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and for the last number of weeks, we've been playing audio from the recent Strategic Philanthropy Global Summit that my partner, John Ramstead, helped lead. Today's the final one that we're going to be playing for a while, and it's by Lance Wallnow. Of all the interviews and shows we feature with Lance up to this point, John and I believe that this one may be the best ever. So, without further ado, here's the replay from that summit. All right, everybody, welcome to the second speaker at the Strategic Philanthropy Global Summit, Lance Walnow. Lance, welcome to the summit. Great to be here, John. You know, today is all about your why, why we're doing this. And Lance is going to be teaching on uniting your purpose and your calling. Uh, Lance has become a personal mentor for me. Uh, some of you know a little bit about my story, having recovered from an accident to put me in the hospital for two years and really just seeking my own calling and my own purpose to actually do business in a way to support my family, to make a difference in this world. And through that process, I've gotten to know Lance. He's just become a great personal friend. And I've never met somebody that's just more of just a a thought leader. Uh, Lance, you've had just an incredible career, 30 years in business as a consultant, in ministry. Uh, you've, You've spoken around the world as a speaker and a teacher with people like Ken Blanchard and John Maxwell. You've taught it but Harvard and MIT and the London School of Theology and uh, everybody listening, I just, what I want to share with you is that if you can take what Lance is going to share with you and apply it in your life consistently, what's going to happen is, is going to be so meaningful, uh, so joyful uh, that you're going to, I hope that you look back on this time in the summit and some of the speakers, especially this conversation with Lance, is that this was kind of that inflection point when things just really started changing with who you are, what you do in this world, what you're known for, and what is that legacy that you're building for yourself. So, uh, Lance, you know, to get started, for some people that might not know you as well as I do, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about uh, who you are and your background. Oh, who I am and my background. Well, that's after that great introduction. I mean, what else do they need? So I feel narcissistic talking even more about myself. Uh, you know, the most important, um, I think, uh, addition to that is that I was, uh, I grew up uh, born in Oyster Bay, Long Island. So I'm New Yorker by uh, accent if I'm under pressure. And uh, curious fact is I found out at a full gospel business meeting, that's a charismatic uh Pentecostal type of uh, meeting used to go on back in the 80s and 70s, really strong in the United States. I was at a meeting when I was like 19 years old, and a missionary from Israel came off the platform and told me, he said, young man, God's going to use you to reach your people. And I had grown up in the Episcopal Church, and I I actually uh, didn't consider that to be a very exciting destiny. And so I said, (laughs) my life is to reach Episcopalians? He said, no, to reach Jews. And I said, why would I reach Jews? He said, well, why don't you call your father and ask him? Which is a fascinating uh, statement. He didn't say call my mother, call my father. So I called my dad up, and my dad proceeded to tell me that, uh, hey, he said, listen, uh, who said this? Who is this person? Who did, what's his name again? He's trying to figure out who this guy, who the leak is that's talking about him. And uh, he said, look, your brothers didn't ask me anything. I'm going to respect that you honor the privacy of the conversation. Right away, my dad's an attorney. I know he's having a private meeting with me. Now, my brothers can't know about it. Something is really guilty here. So I said, well, dad, what is it? He said, yes, yes, yes. You, you, there's Jewish in your background. 
His father was Jewish. Orthodox rabbis, the names were Cohen's. They were the Levites in Israel. But he worked at Standard Oil Exxon, and there was so much prejudice against Jews, he bailed on that part of his heritage and raised us up as Gentiles in order to help us avoid persecution. And I told him, that. You know, Dad, to be honest with you, the, the only group in the world that actually goes gaga over Jews is, uh, is, is uh, evangelicals and uh, charismatics. They love everything Jewish. They're all trying to prove they are Jewish. He said, well, that's the one group in the world this will work with. But with everybody else, I recommend you keep it uh, quiet. So, so that's, you know, that's the other part of the story, which is discovering that who we are with one conversation can shift your identity. And I found out after that point that I not only have uh, some Jewish in my background, that Cohen's Levites is in. I'm a teacher, too, which is interesting. My call is to teach, and it's in my bloodline. But uh, I also have nieces and nephews and family members in Israel. So when I go to Israel, I see a whole tribe of individuals that are part of my family. So hopefully this conversation today is going to be a window into something that activates people's identity that will open up an entire new chapter that, in fact, God has been writing all along in the past. They just didn't know it. So what does that mean to tap into a whole new identity, Lance? Well, it means that uh, it depends on your worldview. You know, they, so obviously I'm already, you can already hear that I'm coming from a, uh, a God-believing worldview, but it's a very powerful thing when you believe that there's a designer in life rather than a randomness. So if you're random, then you were some kind of a cosmic accident that happened in a sexual encounter, and then through some evolutionary process, you came into being, and when you're done, you probably go back to the ground from which you came. That's, that's a basic um, uh, scientific or agnostic worldview. In my view, you came into Earth because there is a God and a designer, and therefore there's a purpose. And you exist for a purpose. The greatest mystery in life is finding out the purpose for which you were created and fulfilling it. When you step into alignment with your God-ordained purpose, the universe itself conspires to create a pathway for the manifestation of a future that is not just random or being self-created, but actually unfolding because it was part of God's plan in eternity for you. God stands outside of time. He wrote chapters in your life. There's a chapter you're going into, a chapter you're coming out of. The very fact that I can harmonize my choices with the unfolding of a divine purpose is an infinitely superior um, uh, and, I think, provable uh, alternative to struggling in the marketplace to try to make ends meet and find fulfillment. You say it's provable. What kind of provable is that? Well, the provability is, and for those of us that are walking in this thing, uh, it's, the, it's the phenomena of what we would have to call unusual coincidences, how, how events happen and unfold in exactly the style and manner in which they were predicted to unfold or forecasted to unfold. You know, the greatest proof of that is that we just came through Easter, and so what you have is this weird conspiracy, this convergence of 60 or 70 prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus in one week of his life. And these are prophecies that were hundreds of years before he even existed. Uh, and that, so that's the biblical context of what prophecy is. But personally, it's the realization that the provable part is that God tells you to, uh, gives you a vision or a calling or an assignment. And as you begin to make choices that move in the direction of the assignment, unusual and strange events take place that open up a pathway for you to go to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. And I don't, I almost hesitate to give examples because invariably 
They are so, uh, they're such that um, I don't want to distract people from the main point of the conversation, but I will tell you, for instance, since you asked the question, John. Yes. <laughs> I found that when you reach a place of surrendering your life to the purpose for which you were created, and I'm talking about a consecration of your life so that you literally transact with God as you understand him, I will do what you call me to do. I will, if you show me the path, I will take it. You start to get visited in your imagination with ideas, problems that bother you, that are coming to you, that you'll find that you're ordained to solve. Uh, in the case of Nehemiah, this will be very important for people listening. You might discover your purpose and your calling, not through the passion and pleasure that you pursue, like Bill, like I'd say Steve Jobs. He had a passion for calligraphy, dropped out of college, but kept his calligraphy course. Continued hmm. to commute to go to calligraphy because he loved the art. He said he didn't have any idea about Apple computer or what they were going to do. He just knew he loved art and it, and it, it called to him. His first product that he put out with Macintosh was Fonts de Leon, his software for changing the static one-dimensional courier type font that was coming out on IBM to an infinite variety that he had designed of fonts based on his calligraphy experience. So he took his passion, and it eventually worked into his assignment, which was to innovate the technology that we're enjoying and I'm using right now, both on my desk for a phone and on this conversation with you. Yeah, you know, the whole Apple industry. The guy was tapping into something. And, uh, and Bill Gates, uh, likewise, when he was in Harvard, he said that uh, he dropped out his second year because he could see Microsoft. He saw what was happening in, in the technology field, and he felt that if he could see it, other people could see it. And he found out later that he was 24 months ahead of the technology curve. He thought if he saw it, other people saw it, but he saw something in his second year which had to do with the future he himself could tap into. Uh, so some people can pursue their pleasure and find their passion and their calling and their purpose. Uh, in Nehemiah's case, in the Old Testament, he found his purpose in the pain of a problem he had to solve. But I'm saying to you, these are ways that the universe is knocking on your door, talking to you about your design. So Nehemiah hears the story about his uh, brethren and the condition of the walls that are destroyed and the, de and the deteriorated and judged status of the nation and the city that he loved. And the Bible says he wept. And the next thing that happens is he concedes the desire to go solve the problem and build a wall. Those are the two pathways in which purpose and calling meet together. And we'll talk in a minute about how it gets monetized, because that's the fun part. <laughs> but when you have a positive purpose or passion, pursue it, because it'll lead you into um, the connections that take you where you want to go. Now, I said a moment ago, provable. To me, here's the provable part. If you start studying this as a science, such as at MIT, where they are discussing now a course called Theory U, meaning the alphabetic letter U, they look at something like Jonas Salk and the, uh, I guess it was the uh, polio vaccine. And as Jonas Salk is pursuing the um, creation of a vaccine to alleviate the, uh, you know, the trauma and the destruction that was coming with polio, he said it occurred to him somewhere in the process that while he was trying to find the vaccine, he had the distinct awareness that the vaccine was trying to find him that uh, in many ways he found strange coincidences of conspiracies of data or incidences that were opening up possibilities to solve the problem that weren't even in his plan. Mm. 
Hmm. And so he said there, that he left the open the possibility that there's a future seeking to become manifest. Now, if you are a, a believer, then you know you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What we believe as believers is that there's a real spiritual dimension. Heaven is trying to manifest in solving problems, promoting happiness, bringing breakthrough technology, and uh, producing human flourishing and, and, uh, and dealing with evil. Your calling can be in the form of pain that knocks on your door that you resolve through your gifting. Or your calling can be through a passion that is resonating with something you want to pursue that eventually works into the blueprint. But it frequently comes in the form of, um, of premonitions also. So now my, my, my personal provable text. I'm sitting in my house here in um, Dallas, Texas. I start watching the American political process because I'm very much interested in the course of nations. I, I work to some degree consulting with different leaders and governments and things like that around the globe. I see the world as a, and it's an enmeshed entity of sorts. And I'm watching uh, Donald Trump. And I have to tell you that I found Donald Trump to be um, an incredibly entertaining character because I was watching the pilgrimage of his work, walking towards a nomination process and doing everything wrong in the path. And as I looked at it, I began to get the uneasy sensation that he just might actually win. He might win because I study Trump, a New Yorker, a businessman. I understand, you know, you know, Trump a little bit. And one of the things that he operates in is what's called the pure power of intentionality. Once Donald gets an idea, whether it's a building, a casino, a large project on the screen of his radar, and he senses it passes the filter of theoretic into possible. It's purely, he says, a gut thing. His own son, I heard this week interviewed, said, my dad operates purely out of the power of intuition. Intuition is one of the greatest indicators uh, of connecting with something that's a, it's an intelligence in the universe outside of yourself. It bypasses the brain. It's a knowing without knowing how you know something. And uh, what Donald does is he operates strongly under intuition and the power of intentionality. Two power agents that I've never seen fail in a philanthropist who makes money. So everybody wants to listen to this formula. When you, uh, when you, when you take on an assignment that you feel you have faith to fulfill because it's a possibility for you to manifest, you just might be having a future that is knocking on your door to manifest. And if you're wired like an entrepreneur, you see the project, could be making America great, could be being president, and it actually passes the filter of the absurd into a certain arena where it materializes in you as a vision. At that moment, you intuit your path forward purely by the intention of manifesting it. This is what Pascal did in, uh, in uh, discovering his vaccine. So there's a future seeking to manifest. You're fortunate in life. It's like Churchill. You discover you enter into an opportunity at Downing Street, and the day he walks into Downing Street, Hitler's invaded Poland. England is completely unprepared. The British Empire is ready to fall apart. No ally in the world is standing with Great Britain, and Winston is 100% alive in that strange, mercurial way that made him that enigmatic person in history he is. He said, I felt as if my whole life were a preparation for this and that I was doing what I was destined to do. The only way that can happen is when you're walking in your purpose and you're living it out in a vocation that empowers you to do it as a calling. 
So Lance, I just want to jump in on this because this is fascinating. Um, you're, so let's speak to some uh, new entrepreneurs on this, on this event right now. They're listening in the summit. They, they, are, they are beginning to understand the power of their intuition. I know I was like that in my first 10, 15 businesses where I thought I was listening to intuition, but I really wasn't. I was just kind of going on hunches. <laughs> right. It was only later on I realized, no, that wasn't intuition. That was just a hunch or a guess or something like that. So how do you distinguish between hunches and guesses and something that's way beyond you when you're doing this? Because uh, now when I, when I look back with the perspective I have, I, ha I have a way that I look at it. I love your perspective on that. How do, you, how do you distinguish? Is it a hunch? Is it a guess? Is it intuition? Well, is it a higher calling? I'll tell you, how, and I actually, it's, it's in the incompleted illustration I gave. My hunch was when I watched Donald Trump, not only would I understand Donald Trump, but that I would meet him and talk to him and tell him something about himself. And I began to giggle because I thought, why would I am from my lounge chair in uh, Dallas, Texas, watching him do these kamikaze moves on his campaign strategy uh, why would I be there? And then the phone rings. Here's the difference. A hunch doesn't usually have verifiable data to work with it. It's kind of a hunch. And, and, and intuition is a far more intelligent and elegant form of hunch because I think it's tapping into a future that is wanting to show up. I get a phone call, my office. You don't be mad, boss, but we got a call two weeks ago. You were on a list of of the of key evangelical leaders put together to meet with Mr. Trump in New York uh, after he announced his candidacy. He just wants to connect with some evangelicals and get some feedback. And I didn't, and my secretary said she had missed the voice message. And so I thought, how ironic. I saw myself at a meeting in New York, and now I'm finding out there was a message two weeks ago that we had missed. I said, well, call up the PR agent or whoever it was, ask them how I got on the list, because I'm not really a well, I'm not, even though my introduction was so celebrated, I, I always joke with people that I'm the most famous unknown person I ever met. Everybody who knows, <laughs> of course, everyone who knows me knows me, but there's a lot of people that never met me. <laughs> so uh, I, got on the, I got on the list because of a meeting I did in Tampa for a group of entrepreneurs. And the PR agent was in the audience. And he said, you're the kind of guy I want to get at this meeting with Trump. So it wasn't because I have a big following. It's because I was at a random event where this guy heard me with only 70 people. Hmm. But he said, you're the kind of guy we need to get up there. So I went up and did the meeting. Ironically, the meeting was not the meeting where I really spoke to Trump and told him what I felt he had to know. Um, and so um, I came back home and I thought, well, that was a strange intuition because uh, I re didn't really do what I thought I was going to do. But, you know, that's how intuition is. It's not an exact science. I'm sitting in my backyard. I got a phone call again. This is from an African-American leader who was at the meeting. He said, brother, you and I, I just resonated with you. What little bit you said I connected with. I'm having a meeting with uh, the man. I want you to join me. I'm going to go up and meet him. And now I have my second meeting. Hmm. It's at the second meeting. I did. Now here's the key. I didn't intentionally do anything. I let the future unfold. And then, of course, there's a point where you have to make a commitment to the future you see. And that because there's resistance sometimes. Yeah. But I went up and in the second meeting. I had the conversation with Trump. I told him what I needed to tell him. I said what needed to be said. And here's the weird part. I saw it before it happened and had no natural connection to making it manifest. It had to come to me in two different vehicles to make it happen. But uh, now what's weird is I've got a third intuition coming at me. 
So now I know I'm beyond the hunch stage. I'm now following the gingerbread crumb trail <laughs> and I see, and I'm seeing a future that is beginning to send me hints as to what wants to manifest. Hmm. So that's how, that's how that works for me. So Lance, I'm thinking about, you know, to build on what Tom said too, a lot of the people listening uh, and you, and you're tapping into this intuition, but you said something earlier on that um, I wrote down that you need to start moving in the direction of that assignment. So when, when, yeah. when you think about movement, you start thinking about momentum. For me, uh, what has held me up in the past is thinking about big movements, jumping cliffs, swimming rivers. But I think what really makes sense is actually how do you take those small steps toward that that builds that momentum? So what does that look like for somebody to move in that direction of an assignment that they don't even have clarity about? Well, you know, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure there's anyone answered, but I, I will tell you this. I, and once again, it's, uh, the Bible for me has been such a blessing in helping me understand something. I had the idea that if it's meant to be, it will happen. I want to suggest to you, if it's meant to be, you have to hustle. That's my quote. <laughs> and, and, here's, and here's the verse for it. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene where Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts is having the meeting of his lifetime, thousands of people, and, and it'd, be like, it'd be like being in Madison Square Garden. He's in the middle of his best meeting, and the thought comes to him. The Bible says it was an angel. Leave this and go to a desert, the desert place. He doesn't know why he's going. He's been given a direction without an outcome. But he has a strong intuition that this voice is a guidance voice from God. He leaves the place of flourishing to go to the place of barrenness by choice. But while he's there, it just so happens an Ethiopian eunuch for um, serving, uh, her name is Candace, the, uh, you know, who's the treasurer for uh, the Ethiopian government, is going by in a chariot. And the voice speaks a second time. And it says, join yourself to the chariot. That verse jumped out at me this year. Because you see, he's in proximity, but he's not aligned fully. He's got a hustle to catch up to his divine appointment. Mm. So he's in the desert. The chariot's going by. And as it's going by, he runs to join it. My old philosophy was, if it's meant to be, the chariot and I will meet. Now, it's, if it's meant to be, you'll get in proximity, then hustle. So, I, so he ran and joined the chariot. And by coincidence, and this is, the, this is the fingerprints I want everyone to listen to, unusual coincidences confirm that there's a hand of providence at work in this situation. A guy, the eunuch, uh, the, uh, the uh, treasurer, is reading the Bible and reading Isaiah. And he's reading one chapter which says, and he was smitten for his people, he was wounded, and he says, who is this talking about? Is this talking about the, the, the guy writing this or someone else? And Philip, beginning with that verse, leads into a revelation of Yeshua, uh, the Mashiach, the Jesus, and he baptizes him. And then Philip's taken away to his next appointment. But what, what, that, what caught me on that is characteristics of intuition that are worth cultivating is that it sometimes takes you in a direction where your natural instincts won't take you. Secondly, it puts you in proximity to the activity of providence, but you might have to hustle to align fully. So don't be a perfectionist. Don't think that it's, if it's God, you might not have to make the phone call or do a little push to get that extra step done. And, uh, you know, and, and the third thing is that if you show up at the right time, God has already been at work on the other end and you didn't know it. This is the part about selling. 
This is the part about marketing that is so fun. If you do your part, you don't know how God has already been at work preparing the client or the prospect for you to emerge as a solution to the problem. It's like they have the dream the night before you have the, you show up with the interpretation of the dream. It's like Pharaoh and Joseph. You've been given the answer, but uh, they've got the problem before you got there. God was in the problem setting up a solution through you that required you to show up and give it. So when you're working with, yeah, this is fascinating. So when you're working with entrepreneurs, how do, what does that look like for somebody who's sitting here right now listening to what you've said and they are, because I, I think there's a tension maybe between intuition and our natural thoughts, right? That create the resistance that I, I'm not going to, uh, I don't know if I really want to take off after that chariot or, or if I do, I take off and I'm, I, I'm not able to catch it. But I want right. to kind of I want to bring it down from the fifty thousand foot view to the practical application of that. What advice do you give people that are right out there right now, are trying to figure out what this is because they want to step into a business or they're running a business and it's not doing what they had hoped it would do or expected it would do, but they know that this future that they lay in bed at night and they're looking up at the ceiling and they're just kind of dream the what if dreams that we all have. And they know they can get there, but they're, they have this gestalt. They're, they're a little bit stuck between here and there. All right. First of all, it's a very good question. And, and you're asking me Solomon-like questions, which are impossible to answer, by the way. <laughs> I just want, I just want hey, to you've got another 20 minutes. Thanks, Lance. You're not, you're, not, you're, not paying me, you're not paying me enough for this kind of workout you're giving me. But, uh, <laughs> hey, we're paying you twice what we paid the last guy. Uh, you know what? Which is three times more than I got last time myself. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is this. Uh, here's here's what I would suggest: is we are. I've I, if you have you ever been with someone like Jay Abraham, if you ever around someone who is a secular individual, I'm not even talking about somebody who's one of my charismatic uh, evangelical tribe, but just people that are remarkably gifted by God. I study mastery wherever I find it, mm-hmm. because to me, I'm studying the design of God. Whether the person knows God is irrelevant. Christians make a big mistake by only wanting to read the Christian bookshelf and the bookstore. What you want to do is you want to study mastery and genius wherever it manifests, recognizing it's the handiwork of God at work. That is a, that's a great point. Jay Abraham, for instance, taught me a tremendous amount. Jay Abraham taught me that you can monetize virtually anything if you understand marketing. So here's what I would start with. You're laying in bed at night. What is it you love to do most? I can sometimes sit down and figure out how to monetize what other people do. I'm talking to one person the other day. They love to read books on human potential. And they love sharing those insights with other people. I said, perfect. We can do a book of the month. What you do is you drill down on the book. I'll interview you on the subject and and I'll position you as a subject matter expert on that book. But you go ahead and do four or five more modules walking people through the coaching experience and they can go online and download your podcast. And maybe even as a group, you can walk them through a call and coach them on how to implement those ideas because this person's energized by the ideas they read and they love sharing them. Then their frustration is they got to leave that to go make a living doing something they don't like to do. I'm always mm-hmm. thinking, how do you monetize the thing you love to do? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're laying in bed at night worrying about finances, aches and pains, problems about, you know, phantom illnesses and sicknesses, maybe you want to take a look at the health field and you want to look at how to be able to create solutions to problems. In other words, take whatever you're experiencing and realizing you're, in this sense, it's humbling. You're not that unique. Other people are experiencing the same things. Therefore, you are your own walking lab uh, focus group for product development. 
if you're at 55 or 56 worrying about your diminished sexual vitality, then I promise you, you've got a market of 50 million men that are thinking the same thing. <laughs> worrying about it, go make some money and your vitality will come back. <laughs> so that's how an entrepreneur thinks. They think, how can I take this pain? And maybe it's a Jewish entrepreneur, especially. How can I take this pain and find the funny? Where, where's the humor in the, con where's the contradiction that makes it, uh, makes it comedic almost? I'm going to make money off of this thing. That's what an entrepreneur does. By the way, let me say this. I know you weren't asking it, but you might be thinking it. Where in the world can people find the link between wealth creation and philanthropy without guilt? I want to talk about this. Uh, wealth creation without guilt and philanthropy. I gave a quote this week to a group of young entrepreneurs, and at first when I said it, it sounded almost unseemly and inappropriate, but I stand by it. I said that there's nothing in the universe more useless than a broke philanthropist. Because I run into people all the time that want to give to worthy causes. And especially if you're around charitable organizations and nonprofits and people with a ministry inclination, they want to feed the hungry. They want to deliver the sex slave trade. They want to get people out of ISIS grip. They want to change the world. The problem is they're broke. And so then we're working on how to get their lives together and make money. So I wanted to say this. Philanthropy is meaningless unless you have a lot of money. Because uh, it's kind of hard to uh, it's kind of hard to to uh, contribute to the needs and pains that are in the world unless you have resources, and don't you think God knows that? So therefore, the original blueprint for wealth creation come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You and I have all been taught, all of us have been taught and seen the world through whatever cultural filter was given to us by our teachers. Here's how people teach Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All you hear about, Abraham walked with God. He sacrificed his son Isaac on an altar. He's like a type of Jesus. And he looked to God. He trusted God. And God said, don't kill him. And Jesus is like Isaac. He comes through that. And, and everything's about Jesus and Isaac's sacrifice. One day in the life of this guy, he's like 100-something years old. Everybody focuses. That's his whole life. Here's the part that they miss. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were founding fathers of a nation. All three were not temple priests or, or government prophets like Isaiah or wilderness prophets like Isaiah, like Elijah. They were three generations of Jewish entrepreneurs with multiple streams of income. Let me say that again. God's founding fathers for the nation that produced the Messiah was three generations of Jewish entrepreneurs managing multiple streams of inherited income. <laughs> now, if that was what you and I were taught in Bible school, in Sunday school, we'd be thinking like entrepreneurs. Instead, we think about sacrificing Isaacs. Yeah, Abraham had eight separate revenue sources, eight very well-developed businesses, every single one of them profitable. Absolutely. And let me add that when he sent his servant to go get a, a daughter for his son Isaac, which is great. Jewish people for years have been trying to manipulate their kids into marriages. It's a great, fee it's a great <laughs> gift that the Jewish people have. <laughs> but uh, but, they, but, uh, but what, what's interesting is when the servant, who is largely unnamed uh, by people, uh, they're not sure what his name is, but when the servant gets trusted by Abraham with the assignment of getting that girl, it's interesting that when the servant goes to uh, the land, you know, Haran or wherever it was, where he finds uh, uh, Rebecca. When he meets Rebecca, it's by divine appointment. It was a divine appointment. Catch how the, the realm of entrepreneurial 
works. It's these unusual coincidences are marking the, the, the territory of divine appointments. The first girl that comes and waters the camels, and he prays, may the first one that comes and waters the camel be her, boom, she shows up and she waters the camels. When he goes to meet her family, Laban and the rest of the family, he describes how he was sent on the mission. And you've got to look at this in Genesis because it's fascinating. He says, God has prospered my master greatly. Those eight streams of income, the employees knew, had a supernatural benediction on their wealth creation. When Abraham sent him, he said to him, the Lord will send his angel before you on your journey. Literally, Abraham said, an angel will go with you. Now put it together. Abraham knew that every major transaction, covenant expansion that had to do with his work had angelic intervention. Even his employees knew God was working through supernatural channels. Angels were working to set up divine appointments for Abraham for every stage of his wealth creation. So I want to really work with divine appointments. I want to work with people. I'm always curious as to why God sends them and who they are. And I, I'm reluctant to say no often because I find that God is very seldom in the appointment that I created. Most often he shows up in the margins of the unmanipulated events in my life. Mm. He, does, he surprises me with what he's doing. It enters on, it's the phone call I didn't expect. It's the invitation I didn't expect. So on one hand, as an entrepreneur, we're catching up to what we got to do, and we're intentional, and we're overcoming opposition. And on the other hand, we have these margins where we're very open to the, um, the intrusion of a better idea or a divine appointment that can alter the course of how we're getting where we want to go. So Lance, but, on, on that point, um, how does an entrepreneur make time and space to listen to that? Because that, for me, is, is, you know, you just talked about the struggle and tension and the pushing through versus what I would call time and space to, to feel or hear or listen to those things. So in your experience, what are some of the, some of the ways that an entrepreneur can uh, allow the time and space in their lives for that? This, With, is a part, this is a part that I'm not good at, but I'll tell you what it is. I'm like the fitness instructor that doesn't go to the gym, but I'll tell you what you need to do. <laughs> All right? I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Years ago, I studied a mathematician named James Steffen, got his PhD at Stanford on the connection between, get this study, statistics and fulfillment. You talk about a fascinating uh, merger. His degree was on levels of personal satisfaction uh, based on data points that he accumulated. And he was working in a uh, factory in Connecticut, and he interviewed the top manager was miserable. The middle management was fighting with the union. The employees were fighting with the, with the management. The company was in a state of complete strife, and he's working on trying to find data points that are going to correlate job fulfillment and satisfaction with certain, certain factors he was exploring. He runs into one guy whistling before he leaves at night. The guy's a janitor. He's got uh, headphones on. He pulls the headphones out. He goes, I notice you're whistling. Can I ask a few questions? He asks him about his happiness index, his engagement. Finds out the guy really loves working there because he's working his way through this. Through This is helping him go through night school to get his law degree. In other words, if a person has a purpose for the pain or the contradiction they're going through, they can borrow from the purpose backwards and pay it backwards into making it a state change. And what they're, in other words, 
I don't mind the pain of what I'm going through here in this job because it's connected to something better that I'm getting out of this. So Stefan Stark changes his, his graduate thesis from fulfillment to something else called time and life management because he realized that happiness is largely a state that is the byproduct of the meaning you attach to what's happening. Hmm. And if you're in, he said, the people that had the best jobs were unhappy. The guy with the not so best job was the most fulfilled because he associated it with a future that was different. So when you know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, then you can start to believe that what you're going through is actually taking you to the desired place you want to go. You can start to enjoy it before you get there. Powerful idea. So Stefan would say this, T-I-I-M-I-N, Timin. I'll never forget it. It was total involvement in my most important now. He said, this is the secret of entrepreneurial fulfillment and professional happiness. It's setting up your life so that every week you are putting your energy into the things that matter most before the week begins, design it so that there's time for your marriage, time for your health, time for your spirit, time for your business. And then once you've created the basic structure for the week, give yourself permission to, for, to have total immersion. Because real bliss, real bliss, it's never happening to a person who's multitasking. If you ever ask somebody, what are the highlight moments of your life when you're 100% immersed in the moment, 100% fulfilled, 100% uh, ecstatic, it's like the Olympic, the Olympic ski jumper. Boom, the moment he's up there in the air, 100% of his mind, body, and soul are focused on being present to the moment. The, uh, the, the performer on a stage, and it was the perfect performance. It was what you call flow, 100% immersion in the moment. The great athlete who's moving with that skill, almost like it's a ballet act, is 100%. So Stefan said the secret is to a couple of things. One is to, uh, is to structure your week so that you are, you're attending to all the components that are necessary and then give yourself permission for total immersion in the task at the moment. Because what I find is that your total immersion in the task, it allows you to discover God interrupting or God showing up in a way that you miss if you're fragmented, driven, and trying to catch up with life. Secondly, make sure that um, your philosophy about the things you don't like, like working out right now or dealing with that employee review or reading that insurance policy what you have to do is take those things that are not your purpose, not your bliss zone, not the thing you love to do most, but you have to give them a meaning. And the meaning is that is necessary to my purpose. Mm. So when you, when you put a circle around those things you don't like and they're necessary to your purpose, you shift the meaning of them from being a hassle, a pain in the butt, I wish I could hire someone else to do it, to being part of my purpose. This gets me into the sweet spot where I get to enjoy what I want to do. Holy cow. Holy cow. For those of you that are watching this live, you're going to want to get the recordings for all the summit just for that 20 uh, minutes. I'm just saying, I got chills, John. <laughs> Look at your arms. He's like, Woo! <laughs> uh, that's like, that's like a master's degree in applied business strategy in 10 minutes. Holy cow. 
because not only are you addressing the flow and the zone, and the, that's part of the, the part of the passion that most of us as entrepreneurs, we seek that out, right? We're looking for that. We're, that's the game we're playing. But you've also taken all of the other dynamics, all of the other structure components, and, 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 and have positioned it in such a way that it has meaning. It has value. And so, so a person can play that game and do it extraordinarily well. I love it. Wow. Well, you know, I want to kind of go backwards actually and build on something I think could also be really helpful to people because I've seen you do this live and on stage, Lance, where you bring people up and you walk through what they're good at and what their passions are. Right. And there has been some amazing breakthroughs because I think you have to have clarity of that assignment to know what you should be immersing yourself into, to, to know what task to focus on, to give those ones you don't like to do that meaning, right? To, to start that process. Right. And as you bring people up and you walk them through that process, you can describe that if you'd like to. Uh, one of the things that always struck me that always shows up are limiting beliefs and mindsets that prevent people from almost looking at things with accuracy uh, about what that assignment should be. Yeah. Does that, I think, you know, do you know where I'm going with that question? Yeah. I'd love for you to maybe expand on that. Well, and the question, so the question is, um, is there an overall unifying process that can help the entrepreneur uh, begin to get in the direction of uh, what they're wired to do and what they're really gifted to do best and ultimately will love to do most? And there are limiting beliefs that can, that can wreck that. And so a couple of things come into mind real quick. When you go to the military, there's a reason why they make you jump out of planes and climb over objects and, and do all those traumatizing uh, shouting and yelling and walking and get your hair shaved and you, you, you move in unison because the military is an organized ancient effort all the way from the Greeks of Alexander's day to traumatizing men into new behavior. But there's something interesting about the military. It works. And what it's doing is it's, it's utilizing a process of creating a thing called reference experiences. Hmm. Because once you've jumped out of a plane, you're a soldier, you're a Marine, you're a killing machine. And this may not be what you grew up with, with your little sister and your mom, <laughs> but this is what the Marines are telling you. And what, and what, well, what sister what, thinks is what you grew up with. But. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> but, if, but, if, but if you take like a tripod, like we've got tripods all over my studio here, like this thing here, the tripod is, it's these reference experiences are the legs that create your identity. So if you have, if you, they stack reference experiences in you of being a soldier, talking like a soldier, walking like a soldier, group identification, unit identification. And so what happens is anytime there's a major change in your potential, you have to have emotional memories that lock you into the potential of being that person. So military does it by immersion for 13 or 15 weeks in a total immersion into a new product. But if you ever want to recreate yourself, you got to listen to this. You must go beyond mere mental affirmations, motivational books, or support groups and tapes. You have to create for yourself redefining moments when you take a chance and create a new reference experience. So the secret is to create as safe and predictable a success as possible. So it might be practicing the joke with your friends that you would love to tell on a stage later on in life. But you tell the joke with your buddies. 
Listen, this is how people develop a personality. They see themselves as funny, as witty, as comical. How? Because they're cracking their friends up. They didn't start off on improv. They started off in a classroom with four or five of their buddies drinking beer, and they're all belly laughing because you crack them up. That's a reference experience. I am a comedian or I am entertaining. So, so what, what God does in many ways is he says, be bold, be courageous, do not be afraid. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us that, that, that shot in the arm to risk a new reference experience. Because if you go out into life in the area of your calling or assignment, I promise you that you will find a conspiracy of factors come together to reinforce your identity. Your reference experiences are waiting for you. So part of the challenge is, uh, you know, in terms of like what we're going to talk about now, the passion process, is we've got to create moments when people have a new reference experience. A good, right. trainer, a good teacher sets up the client for the reference experience. Aha. Now to the thing that John's talking about. I take people in my audiences and I have them write down their top 15 or 20 passions. That is the things that bring them the most alive, that give them the most joy, that, that uh, give them the most fulfillment. And it could be, you know, like the, the Steve Jobs illustration. I love calligraphy. I love building companies. I love making money. I love creating innovative solutions. You know, what? I just listed four or five clusters of what eventually would be this guy's job description in life. So I get people to list what really, what problems do they want to solve? I really care deeply and powerfully about women that are in abuse situations or abandoned youth or children, blah, blah, blah. So whatever it is, I get them to list the top 10. Then we do a racehorse in front of a group because sometimes, believe it or not, people are incongruent. They have a passion that they themselves aren't even aware they've got. Other people see it and you don't. That's because we're disconnected sometimes. Yeah. Well, I, and also in a public group, they're listing those in order of almost the approval of the audience, what they think will look cool <laughs> or righteous. Invariably, they're going to change the world and be, you know, this and that. And then around number five or six is they're going to make a lot of money. But they didn't put make a lot of money first because it's socially taboo. Unless you're coming from my Abraham Isaac Jacob teaching, which most of them didn't get. So, uh, <laughs> so they'll put, you know, want to change the world, want to end sex slave trade, want to be able to create jobs that help women come into their full identity and recover themselves, want to make a lot of money. And so, but so here's what I find. When they go down the list in public, I have them do a horse race. The first one against the second one. The, and whoever survives against the third one. Whoever survives against the fourth one. The survival of the fittest. Invariably, I find five, six, seven, eight, or nine. It's always below the midpoint where they're really passionate comes out. And it isn't always making money. It could be about, you know, music and their passion for music and being able to change the state of other people through harmony and sound that they create. Now, when they say it, there's emotion attached to it. Mm. That means that it's already got reference experiences, mm -hmm. but it never materialized to a point of being a conscious priority. So what I do is I get them to do a surgical analysis of the top three and then have them say the top three. We erase everything else. We started off with 20. We're down to three. And several of them were not even listed in the top five, but I found them buried at the bottom of that list. Now, at this point, I have them say who I am. I am, and then I give the sentence, I am a courageous, wealth-creating entrepreneur that travels the world, that produces experiences that result in transforming lives 
and I use my wealth and my creativity to help young ladies come out of the captivity of control and dominion and suffering that they are living in right now. I create new worlds for young women through the wealth of my business. So I might try to do different ways they say it, but around the third or fourth iteration, we have a statement that when they make it, it's almost a cellular reframe of who they are. And you can see in the audience the new identity. It's a reference experience. It's putting into words who I really am and what I really do. The closest thing to this is a prophecy you get from someone, which usually is just data coming in to reinforce the image, but it's not yet cellular. It's not your image identified. It's just hope for the image you hope you have. So it's a very powerful process, but it's intentionally done to create a reference moment of clarity on identity. And then you know, just think, if you woke up every day with that identity and, and you operated from that, uh, you'd have a lot a lot different set of events happening. <laughs> well, you know, linking this back to theory, you, when I have seen this in, 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 I've take that and done it in workshops that I've done with people. And when people get to those three words and they say it in that sentence, it is so true. It is so resonant with what, who they are. It absolutely resonates with everybody in the audience, which creates that reference experience because they are, they're not perceiving, they're actually witnessing you speaking the truth, which then is self-reinforcing. And it is, it is powerful. And I, and I would say that, you know, hey man, if we're talking about the idea of empowering entrepreneurs to know they can do good and make money at the same time, I'd say that uh, look for uh, what your passion is. And do a process like this to get really clear on what flips your switch in terms of what brings you fully alive. And recognize that can change over time, but start where you're at. Look for the problem you want to solve. The, in many cases, here's an ideal. I would do, what I would do is I would do my passion to make my money and my philanthropy to deal with pain. I would take the number one cause that causes me the most pain, and I, would, as a philanthropist, would fund innovative solutions to that problem. But I'd make my money spending 80% of my time doing what I love to do most, which is engaging my talents and gifts and abilities in a way that monetizes them, helps other people, and helps create the wealth for me to do my philanthropic work. See, that's strategic, John. Right. That I mean, part of what we named this summit, strategic philanthropy, Lance, is that we believe that it's much, much more than just doing good. And it's much, much more than just making money. It's being smart about both. And that is a great, great summary of that because you've got the, the, the pain solution on the philanthropy. I saw that with my six year old son when he read this book on water. And he was literally moved. And in, in the next three years, he raised enough money that there are 4,000 people in Ethiopia with clean water. And he's, you know, he was six, but he was moved by the pain. And I remember exactly what it was. It was the fact that 50% of the people in hospitals are there because of bad water. Wow. That was the incident. 50% of the world, 50% of the people in the world are there because of bad, of bad water related issues. And he was, you know, as a six-year-old, he was moved to do all kinds of things. But that, of course, is not a business, <laughs> right? That's not a business for someone. You can right. raise a lot of money, and he did. But that's not a business. That Doing the stuff you love is a business. Oh, I love that. Great combination. 
John, I know you wanted to jump in with something. Uh, we're getting close to our time now, which is uh, just flown by. But uh, Yeah, time flew by, man. Time did flew by. You know, one last thing to pull all this together, because you've brought up this word a few times, Lance, and it's the word convergence. I would love for you to share here as, as we kind of land the plane what that is, how people can recognize it, and what it can mean to them. Right. Well, convergence, you know, it's funny. I have these pictures behind me. I should explain. It looks like I've got some kind of a Tolkien movie li li library. It's like the Tower <laughs> of Order and the Tower of something else over here. These are, um, these are actually, let's see, it's education. There's a mountain here. Education. So here's what convergence is. Here's some pictures for my clients on convergence. And that, what is that one there? It's business? Okay. So that's Trump Towers over there. But the... Um, <laughs> But the journey of convergence is, is to make a metaphor out of life and to say that everyone in life is called to climb a certain mountain. And when you're at the summit, you are doing what you're created to do. You're at the highest level of personal capacity, meaning your character has come to the maturity that God intended. Your, um, your, your visibility is now at the measure of influence that the Father intended in order to touch the world that you're assigned to touch. And it is a climbing. And we start out in life, like in this case here with this picture, you start off at the bottom, but there's education. There's books of wisdom on the side. You can learn the wisdom to go into the call. You don't have to go up the rugged outside. There's a way to go into the heart of a calling and go up like a spiral staircase so that at every season of life, the mountain, in a sense, is growing with you. You're at the top of your game now, but there's more mountain next year. You're at the top of that, and there's more next. There's the top of that. Convergence is technically when your gifts, talents, and acquired skills. Notice acquired skills, because you don't start with skill. You acquire them. But you acquire them around the core gifts and talents you possess, so that they're really the most radical, powerful set. And when you acquire those skills, and you employ them in a role, that's the job that pays you, that's the monetizing, to do what you do best, you'll find invariably that you love to do it most. Because whenever you're doing what you're gifted to do, you're alive. Hmm. Now, the fact that this theory you idea or this idea there's a future that wants to be manifest is what I'm talking about. It means God has a purpose for you. It means that the future is an ultimate role that God has in mind. You will go through periods of time when you'll have micro-convergences when you're in the thing you're called to do, doing what you're gifted to do, but it's not a sustainable thing. And there's a reason why. Because uh, in, in the biblical world, it's easy to look at. In personal history, it's easy to look at. What you have is like a good reference point is Joseph is his father's, you know, favorite uh, employee with a certain assignment. And he's doing that, but he ends up going into prison. Uh, pit. His brothers throw him in the pit because of jealousy. So what you end up with is something that looks like this. I'll show you a quick picture. This is really ultimately the strangest technology using this in a digital age. But here's Joseph. <laughs> He's got this favor. His brothers put him in a pit, and he goes down into Egypt. But he comes out of the pit in Potiphar's house working uh, in the, um, as a manager over the guy's uh, farmland because he's so good at what he does. But the guy's wife uh, makes a pass at him, and he ends up going to prison. Uh, for trumped-up rape charges, even though he wasn't guilty. But in prison, he takes over the prison and ends up serving in the prison, helping the guy that's in charge of the prison run the prison. But while he's there, 
he interprets the dream of a butler and a baker by divine appointment to high officials. The, uh, the baker dies. The butler promises to get him out of prison because he realizes he's a gifted administrator and a slave. He never should have been in Egypt in the first place. He forgets him for two years. After two years, Joseph comes out of prison to his divine appointment. Now, you'll notice different jobs, different mountains, different convergence, but ultimately, he's called to rule in life with that one final assignment, and that one final assignment actually is the crowning of his career, and now for the next 30 or 20 years, this role here as being Pharaoh's chief advisor is going to be how he saves his nation of Israel. So you could say that you know, the Bible says, hold fast your crown, lest another take it. The crown is when you go through the processes God takes you through to arrive at the sweet spot where your gifts, talents, and abilities, your acquired skills, your character are all serving in a role that empowers you to do what God created for you to do in the future. That's the moment of convergence. And you have micro-convergences and see those low points? They're called process events. Even that's part of the process. I'm afraid when we teach like this, John, sometimes we get people all hyped and excited about this. We don't tell them. The process events are the low points between the high points. Life has a rhythm, and some of the richest stuff, if you have a stew, you got it's all weak and water at the top. If you really want to get to where the meat and potatoes are, you got to go to the bottom. Sometimes you got to reach down into the stuff of life to get to where the good stuff is. So even those processes are beautiful moments when you are going through new reference experiences to discover you are resourceful, you are creative, you are a person of endurance, you are a person of character, you're redefining who you are in the contradiction, boom, so you can demonstrate it on the next stage. Mm-hmm. That's, how I, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I know you're gonna ra- you're gonna wrap and transition, John. But I- I'll just jump in here. That uh, you know, some of the most meaningful things that have happened in my life have been through those dips and valleys, and um, that just put great context around it because we, we call it preference re- reference points. Yeah, well, those are process events. Pro- process events. That's okay, what, that's gonna... that's when you're going through a process, and the process is uh, is actually defining you, changing you. And they're, they're, every single uh, speaker, presenter that's sharing their wisdom at this uh, summit has been through them. Uh, we've done pre-interviews with all of them by the time you see this, uh, final interviews with many of them, and some of their stories around those process events have been chilling. Um, I've yet to meet, and I don't know you, Lance, I've yet to meet anyone, a significant impact on the planet that hasn't been through multiple processes. Uh, sure. Because process events are the, are the areas in which you're, um, you're proven, in a sense. It's like the kiln where you put the vase in and the heat, it fixes the character and the glaze of the vessel in the process event. And if you're a really elegant destiny, you might go into the, into the glaze, the furnace, two or three times, getting, your, getting the colors brought to their full definition. Love it. Love it. Well, you know, I'm just thinking of people right now that are listening that, that, you know, what they're saying to themselves, I am in the middle of a process event. And I hope one of the things that got out of this, Lance, was context. That in the context of their assignment, what they're going through right now, even though it's not pleasant, they don't want to be here, maybe they feel like they failed or made a mistake. But everything that's happening, all of it, all means all, that's all, all means, Right. 
all of it is part of like you drew going to that next peak, even though they might not have clarity or visibility of what that peak is, but it's going to be moving and accelerating them toward that as what you talked about, the future that's out there is waiting for them, but they're not through this process yet. They're not ready yet to actually be in that role because they haven't, they don't have the skill, the skills, the learned experience, the learned skills, the experiences, the gifts, talents haven't been shaped and forged to be ready to take on that role yet. But here's the great news. It will be, but they they do have to keep persevering and moving forward toward that. And that is what we're really encouraging people to do is keep stepping forward, be in community. You know, at the end of this summit, we're going to be reaching out to everybody and we want you to be in community with us and other entrepreneurs and be learning from each other and encouraging each other and, 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 you know, sharing your high moments and your failures and your successes and, and and the hard things. Uh, Because you know what, it's when we live life together and we support each other with all of our different callings and all of our different uh, weaknesses and strengths uh, that as a group, we can accomplish things that I think are going to just be, uh, they're going to be eternal. They're going to outlive anything that we do during our time here on, in this world. Absolutely. And so I would say to people that keep listening to that voice that got you this far, that you got you to this broadcast. I mean, I'll tell you that there's a lot of very powerful material that we've covered here. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to them to know that the, you know, that not only me, but other speakers that are speaking are all part in a sense of, uh, of the provision of the universe trying to help them get uh, to the next step. And so keep listening to the voice that got you to this broadcast because that'll get you to the next thing you got to do. Yeah. And, and guys, you know what? Follow Lance on Periscope. It's at Lance Wallnau, W-A-L-L-N-A-U. You can go to Lance's website. There's just fantastic material there, lancelearning.com. And Lance, did you have something? Well, I know we talked about this before. Uh, something on your site that people can sign up for or download or, or just kind of be part of your, your community? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I was just thinking about that, and I was trying to remember um, what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but I, think, I, I know we talked I, about it before, but I forgot to write it down. I did, I did too, but I'll tell you what, we'll put it up on the screen for them. When you do your, we'll have this yeah, available. We'll put it in the link and we'll also send it out in the summary of today's talk so, we, so everyone gets yeah, it. Yeah, I, I have, what I have is a text link that we've got. I'm going to send it to you and it gives them like 30 minutes or 45 minutes of passion process training on this it. very powerful process of understanding mm-hmm. your passion. It is, yeah. So I'll give them 30 minutes of free stuff and if they want more, they can get it then. But it's like, you know, it's a, it's a simple text number I'm going to send you. Perfect. Perfect. And we'll put that in the link. So everybody who's listening to this live or recorded or the audio, go back to the emails that are in your inbox. Just search for the summit and Lance Wall now and, you, and you'll, you'll be able to find that link. And Lance, thank you so much for today. Just any final thoughts, Tom or Lance here as we, as we sign off? Tom, what do you think? I, th- I think we covered a lot of the. Yeah, of I, I think there is uh, there. I, I don't know. I got several pages of notes on my end, and this is part of what I love about this event. I appreciate you taking the time, Lance. Um, this is speaker number two, folks, uh, for the summit. Uh, the rest of the day is going to be a dynamite pairing. Uh, with two different, uh, two totally different perspectives. Mika Agrawal, she's going to talk about lessons of growing a social enterprise the taboo category. You're going to love this fresh perspective on entrepreneurship. And then one of the masters of creating million dollar enterprises, T. Harv Eker, uh, wraps out day one with 
his exact strategies and beliefs and habits to create your first million dollar or multi-million dollar business. Yeah, um, T. Harvey. That's very good. I, I love T. So that's good. Yeah. He By is awesome. And, and, and I'm, so, I'm so appreciative of your time in, in setting the stage for defining that you can do both at the same time, Lance. So I appreciate you taking the time right. and sharing it with our message. I appreciate that. Listen, I found the number. I just text. I just checked it out here on my phone. Here it is. Perfect. The number is five 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 eight eight eight. That's and what and what do they text to that number? Just my name, Lance. Lance. Just go five 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 eight 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 and just text the name Lance, and um, it'll send you a link. And the link gives you like thirty minutes or forty minutes of free training, which I think will be very helpful on this whole subject of passion. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. All right. Good to talk to you. If you'd like to learn more about Lance, his blog, his very active Facebook page, his radio show on One Place, Periscope broadcasts, all that and more, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 120. And there in the show notes, you'll see all that and more. Eternalleadership.com slash 120. If you're a regular listener to Eternal Leadership, could you do John and I a favor? Could you give us a rating and review on iTunes? It's how most people listen to podcasts, and those ratings and reviews help bump us up the podcast charts. The higher we are, the more people that stumble onto us. If you don't listen through iTunes, give us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen, or just share this with someone you think would really benefit from our topics and guests. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.